1: What we saw was the F 4 coming down the runway, missile launches, comes off the aircraft and turns right towards the reviewing staff. And I thought, if I survive the missile strike, these Secret Service guys are going to take me out because it looked exactly (laughs) like we were trying to assassinate the Shaw.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 174 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And this week, we have a repurposed happy hour from 2022. If you're not familiar with those, happy hours are Zoom recordings that I have with various folks in military aviation who come on and just have a casual discussion. And I used to play them just for our Patreon supporters as an exclusive perk. But once in a while, we pull them out and clean them up a little bit and uh, let everybody have a chance to listen. Now, because of that, a couple caveats before we listen. One is this is a Zoom recording, so the audio quality is not terrific. It's just a single audio file, so we can't cut out the uh, noises the other guy's making when one guy's talking. The format's a little different, so it just kind of goes along and wherever we feel like it going. And at the end, I don't ask my customary, what's your call sign and how did you get it question. And uh, one other thing before you listen is back when we recorded this, and I think it was late spring of 2022... I was just getting started on my memoirs, and I'm happy to say I'm up to chapter seven, maybe halfway through the story, and it's going pretty well. Some days the words flow off my fingers a little faster than others, but it is happening. Not quite sure what to call it yet. I've got a couple title ideas in mind. For those of you who do support the show on Patreon, not only have you seen these happy hours, but you also get to read a chapter a month as I hopefully try to keep that pace until I finish my memoirs. Eh maybe at the end of 23, early 24, we'll see. Anyway, before we get to that interview, I hope everyone's doing well. Sometimes when I take the time to talk a little bit more with you on these audio versions, you know that I have listener questions and announcements. Well, lately, I have been mostly just answering listener questions as they come in via email. So if you have a question for the show, you can continue to send it to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or reach out to us on social media. We've kind of put our uh, Twitter, I guess now it's X account on hold, hibernating that one to see if in fact we need to keep it going or not. But we are definitely pretty active on Facebook as well as Instagram and of course our website fighterpilotpodcast.com and uh, email. All right, so for announcements then, just a couple uh, as I'm recording this in mid-August and hopefully you're hearing it not too much after that. There's a lot of activities coming up. We've got our annual tailhook reunion and convention in Reno. And normally that is the weekend right after the Labor Day holiday here in the States in September. But this year, they're moving it forward towards the end of August. And that's where it will be for the next several years. And let's see, after that, I might be heading up to the Reno Air Races. It's the last air races to be held in Reno till they find a new home. We went up there last year and had a good time. I'm still trying to formulate those plans. So I hope to be there. And then for any of you attending the Miramar Air Show, September 22nd through 24th, I plan to be there on Saturday the 23rd. I'll be hanging out at a chalet again, but I'll probably mosey out and make it uh, known maybe on social media or somewhere uh, that I'll be hanging out by some airplanes. So if you want to come say hello, you can. More on that and uh, keep an eye out, like I said, probably on Instagram or maybe Facebook as well. Now, just in my personal life here, some of you always enjoy knowing what's going on. Summer's wrapping up here. Uh, I've got one son heading back to college. He'll be starting his sophomore year. The oldest is uh, done with college. He graduated in May And so he's finishing up some intern requirements. And then my youngest is moving into his junior year of high school. So progress here. Everyone continues to march on and get older and do better, hopefully. So we're happy about that. Now, as for me, I'm in a bit of a food fight, actually, with the FAA over some disability differences they have with the VA and a few uh, skeletons in the closet, medically speaking. So... I expect to be uh, working that out over the next month or two, and probably going to be benched while that happens. So, just when I was starting to enjoy the captain's seat of the airline gig, now I get to uh, cool my heels a little bit. But I expect that we'll be able to work through it. It's just going to take a little time. Nothing in the government seems to work very quickly. So, by the time they say, "Hey, we want more details on this particular issue," well, then it takes a month to get the VA appointment, and a couple weeks to get the results, and then you send it in, and they sit on it forever. So, well, maybe that just means more time for podcasting and maybe fishing. With that then, let's get straight to episode 174 with Ed Cobley. I know you're going to enjoy it. And I won't be back at the end, but uh, we'll see you next time here on the Fighter Pilot podcast. Here we go. All right, so my guest today is Ed Cobley. Am I pronouncing that right, Ed? It's Cobley. Cobley. And you flew F-4s, F-104s, A-4s, Jaguars, F-16s. You flew with Duke Cunningham and Steve Ritchie. Boy, you've done a lot of different things, and now you're on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, at least uh, on this part we call the happy hour. So
1: welcome, Ed. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, and it took a few tries to get you, but I don't know about you. My life is a perpetual game of whack-a-mole. You remember that little thing where the things pop up and you got to hit them as fast as you can. So right. In addition to that, one thing I didn't mention is you're also an
1: author. Well, I try to be. That's right. Tell me about the books. Well, I wrote a memoir about all the fun I had losing the Vietnam War. And um, that went to number one Amazon number one, stayed three and a half weeks as the Amazon number one bestseller. Wow. My aim in writing that book was both to lay out what I saw happen and also make contact with people I had lost contact with and people I never had contact with. And that worked, and that book has sold about 27,000 copies in 12 countries and four languages. And then uh, I said, well, maybe I should write a novel. And so I wrote a novel uh, set in Paris, which features air combat from World War I to Operation Desert Storm. There's an interesting uh, aspect to that. The name of that, the first book was War for the It." The name of the second book was the pilot fighter planes in Paris. It has chapters on various aircraft. I could do the F-16, the F-4, and the F-104 myself. I knew guys that flew the F-86 in Korea. XRF mates helped me with the Spitfire, but I was stuck on the Sopwith Campbell. I mean, uh, you know, where, where do you go for that? I was going to resign to Wikipedia. And in doing the research, I found that there are three authentic flying camels in the world. One's in the RAF Museum in Herndon, one's in Australia, and one's in Paso Robles, California, where I live. (laughs) So I drove the five statue miles out to the airport and had the camel pilots edit my chapter on the camel. So that worked out. In doing the research for that book, I came across the name Roland Garros. You ever hear of Roland Garros? I don't think so. Most people connected, the French National Tennis Center is named after him, the French National Tennis Tournament, which we call the French Open, they call the Roland Garros Invitational, and I always thought Roland Garros was an old-time tennis player, but Roland Garros was actually the first fighter pilot. He was an aviation pioneer, contemporary of the Wright Brothers and Santos Dumont and those people. And uh, he and his uh, crew chief invented the fighter plane in 1915 and demonstrated fighter aviation early in World War I. And so I wrote a biography of him. It's the only one that's in English. And that's done very well as well. Then I, I said, well, OK, maybe I should write another novel. So I wrote another novel during the pandemic. And uh, most of my books feature Paris in some way because that way I have to go there and do research, <laughs> but I couldn't travel. So um, I live in Paso Robles on the California central coast. So I set this novel along the central coast and it features three aviators, two human and one bird. The uh, theme of the novel is sexual harassment in the U S air force and Peregrine Falcons. So that's done fairly well. And then, uh, the first book, War for the Hell of It, I got a lot of feedback from ex-fighter pilots saying, we want more flying stories and less politics. You know, <laughs> But writing about the Vietnam War without writing about politics is like writing about fish without talking about water. And so I said, okay, maybe I'll just put a, a bunch of flying stories into one condominium. So the last book called, And I Live to Tell the Tales, is a collection of flying stories from my flying career, and that's taken off. It uh, came out in uh, late May, and it's going on 1,000 copies sold, and the feedback is, well, the feedback on this one, I'm not getting as many fingers poked in my chest as I did the first one.
0: Good. Pastor Robles, I by the way, I spent my formative childhood in Arroyo Grande. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, you know all about it. Used to go up there to the fair. And I think,
1: um, does George Merritt live up there? He was our A1 fighter. Yeah, he's a buddy of mine. There's a, We have a little air museum here, yeah. the Estrella Warbirds Museum. And he and I are both members there, and I occasionally put on presentations for him. Oh, good.
0: Okay. And then a classmate of mine at Top Gun, uh, Hal Schmidt, callsign Bull, he is uh, up there. He, I think, works at one of the wineries. He's got his own brand.
1: Yeah, he he's the winemaker at one winery, and he has his own small winery.
0: There you go. It's not a bad
1: retirement gig.
0: No, well, he also I think moonlights. He drives out to Lemoore and helps with uh, the out there. So he's yeah, he he's got his fingers in a lot of different pies, I guess. But no, it's a nice area. I enjoyed growing up there, but I just the family all moved away, so I have no reason to go back. But. Definitely is a nice area. All right. So a lot of that experience, though, was based on all that flying you did, or I should say a lot of that writing was based on the flying experience. Let's talk about that a little bit. Did you, you must have retired. You, golly, you must have been a test
1: pilot or what? I mean. No, I, um, two tours in Vietnam, both in the F4. After my second tour, I was tapped to go to the fighter weapons school in Las Vegas. And so I went through the fighter weapons school and stayed on as an instructor. And I instructed in the fighter weapons school for three and a half years. And during that period of time, the U.S. Air Force was trying to get their adversary program going, which we didn't have. And we'd heard rumors about this organization called Top Gun down at Miramar and that maybe those Navy guys actually knew something that we ought to know. So they sent me down to Top Gun to check out as an adversary pilot. So I spent a half a year down at Top Gun with uh, Cunningham and Driscoll and all those guys flying the A-4, and then it took that little knowledge I gained back to the uh, fighter weapons school. Ended up revising, uh, co-authoring the U.S. Air Force Air-to-Air Tactics Manual. Then after that, I got tapped for an exchange tour, and I went and spent two years with the Royal Air Force flying the Jaguar. Instructing in what the RAF equivalent of a rag is, and then once a year we had our own fighter weapons school where I trained other RAF calls qualified weapons instructors. And so after that, I decided that I had probably used up all my lifetime allotment of luck, and so I <laughs> decided to retire and uh, from the air force and flying and got into the intel business and spent the uh, next fifteen years in the intelligence world. Oh
0: wow. Well, you might have used up your luck on your 375, you wrote, missions in, I assume, Vietnam. Golly, that's crazy. I mean, didn't
1: some people get shot down on their first or second mission? I mean, there's a lesson there. And that is, when we were looking at the results of Vietnam, we found out that that's exactly right, that your first 10 missions are your most hazardous. Wow. And we were looking for a way to come up with a way to replicate those first 10 missions in peacetime and give the people the skills. And the result of that is Operation Red Flag. Yeah. Me and uh, three other fanatics devised a red flag and got it going, got it started, and got the adversary program going. And now red flag is probably the greatest training aid in the history of fighter aviation. And it gives those people those vital 10 missions uh, when it doesn't really count.
0: It's brilliant though, right? Because you spend that period of everything's new and coming at me and I don't know what to do. You spend that time in training in a relatively safe environment so that when you get to operations, you have a little more understanding and experience with that. All right. So it's brilliant, frankly. Uh, And the Navy's got a version of that up in Fallon with the air wing training. But yeah, it really makes sense.
1: It works well. And in the um, red flag itself, you usually last about six weeks and you start out with relatively simple missions. And by the end of the uh, training period, you're force on force uh, mass gaggles with B-52s and tankers and ECM and all that. The debriefings mission usually flies at dawn and the debriefings last till 10 o'clock at night, you know, but, uh, Instead of just throwing people in at the deep end, it's a way to gradually build up their, not only their expertise, but their confidence uh, that goes along with it.
0: Right. Well, we have had episodes on pretty much everything you flew, Ed. We've had a F F-104. That was episode 104. We had the F-4. We had the Jaguar. We had the A-4 and the F-16. And so I should have called you sooner. You could have been the consultant on all these.
1: Who did the Jaguar episode?
0: Oh, gosh. I'll have to look. I don't
1: recall. There's a story about that, have you ever been to the Air Museum down in Tucson, the Pima County Air Museum?
0: I've not been to the museum, but I did get a chance to go to the Boneyard and uh, do an episode with them.
1: Yeah, across the highway there, there's one of the world's greatest air museums. I took my wife down there a few years ago, and uh, she had never seen a Jaguar. And there's a Jaguar in the museum, and I thought, okay, we'll, we'll do the tour and uh, I'll show her the airplane I flew. And we did, you know, got a little bus and drove around and then they have all the fighters lined up in a row and there's every fighter aircraft you've ever heard of lined up in a row and uh, we drove by. And there's the Jaguar in the middle of it painted pink. And, and my wife looked at me and said, you flew a pink jet? If I'd never seen a pink Jaguar before. We got out and took some pictures of it. And I had no idea what this was all about. <laughs> and so when I got back home, I called up some RAF mates and said, okay, what's the story with the pink jaguar? And uh, they sent a detachment of eight jaguars to Desert Storm, and uh, actually did very well. And the Brits will try anything. They'll try anything that they think <laughs> of. And they, the jaguars were paid that forest green camouflage for Western Europe. And they stood out against the desert, and they said, well, you we ought to figure out how to camouflage these airplanes so they blend in with the desert. You know, that rust-colored um, desert in the, the rock. they found out that a light, not rust, not ochre, but pink, <laughs> blends in well. So they painted all their airplanes pink. So I, I didn't fly a pink Jaguar, but a bunch of guys did.
0: Wow. Come on, pink is the new black, right? We're supposed to be manly and be willing to wear pink, but no, that's, that's right. That's um, right. So I had to look up while you were talking. Uh, Diraj Basin,
1: Diraj, was this call sign? Mm, didn't ring a bell.
0: Okay, I might be mispronouncing it, but he was our guest, and he's still in the Royal Air Force. So, uh, okay, he was a wealth of information. But yeah, they they made the Jaguar sound like a bit of a handful at times, particularly taking off or landing with if it was high, hot, and heavy, or any of those. But
1: well, the airplane was designed as a low-level trainer, right? And when the Chancellor of the Exchequer saw that they were costing five million pounds each. And the RAF was running out of viable fighters. They said, OK, got to take the Jaguar and make it into something combat capability. And so as a trainer, you could fly 480 knots, uh, 200, 250 feet for an hour and three quarters.
0: 1.7, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, 480 knots, that's a long way at that low altitude but once you start hanging ordnance on it it wasn't designed for ordnance. matter of fact the uh, sidewinder missiles that they mounted on are on top of the wing which they didn't have any other place to put them so once you they eventually turned it into something that had some real combat capability but it really wasn't designed for that but it was fun flying at a low level Oh, i bet i might be getting it backwards but was it
0: in desert storm and it either brought the pods that were needed to lay targets or it was the benefactor of someone else. Maybe it was the tour, not the tornado.
1: Yeah. No, they mounted the pods on the Jaguar.
0: They did. Okay. Yeah. It was the tornadoes that started low and they got beat up. I just read the book by John nickel on that. So it was either actually it was the buccaneer. I think that, that came in just to help in that, but yeah, I know the Jaguar was there too. I was in college. So I was only reading about it and watching it on the news. Yeah.
1: As a combat airplane, it, it lacked a little. The um, cockpit structure was magnesium, and your G-suit was inflated with 100% oxygen. And so um, I made up my mind the nearest wisp of smoke in the cockpit, <laughs> and I'm out of <laughs> yeah, I would say, my
0: goodness. Was your time at the Navy, is that when you flew the A-4? Right. A-4 Mongoose, the adversary, I only flew the trainer, it was a two-seater, and we always had the drop tanks. All right, so from hours-wise, most to least, and you don't have to go all the way down in the trainers and all that, but what did you fly the most? Probably F-4, I would guess. But... Right, yeah,
1: 1,600 hours in the F-4.
0: Okay, then what was next? F-16 maybe, or was that?
1: No, no, got about, about 450 hours in the Jaguar. Okay. And, uh, and just a few hours in the F-16 and the, F1 okay. in the A-4. I think he ended up with 50 hours in the A-4 or something like that.
0: Well, those were probably all under an hour each. Oh, yeah, way under. <laughs> uh, yeah. How did the F-104 come about? Because, again, that's one of those iconic aircraft everyone seems to recognize and love. But, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, maybe 20 years ago, I think it was TRW was flying them at air shows, and it was just, okay, from the left. Yeah, oh,
1: right. Right. <laughs> yeah, high-speed pass left, high-speed Yeah, pass. that's right. Yeah, when I was at the weapons school, they sent me down to – um Luke Air Force Base, where for the German F 104 training was. And I flew the F 104 with the Germans down there. That was a bucket list item because when I was growing up in East Tennessee, uh, my ultimate career objective was to fly the F 104 for the Tennessee Air National Guard. And uh, that never worked out because uh, they got rid of them. But I was going
0: to say, by the time you got there, they were probably gone.
1: Yeah, it was a real thrill to fly the 104. I tell people it was the most fun you can have with your clothes on. (laughs)
0: That's right. They use that in the uh, Flight of the Intruder movie. All right. So I've got this email, like I said, that you sent me. I have to hear this one. Uh, I flew with the Iranian Air Force. And then later you say, I almost killed the Shah of Iran. I did.
1: Well, this is when we were in good relations with Iran. And the Shah got what he wanted. I mean whatever he wanted he got and so he had just gotten the f4e and um, he had two um, classes of pilots in his air force he had the old heads that had flown f86s and f100s and they were pretty good sticks and he had young guys that had gone through uh, pilot training in the states with no experience and so he wanted instructors to go over there and polish up his air force so i spent Two different summers in an Iranian fighter squadron. The first summer we trained uh, the F-4E leading edge slack maneuverability. That was fun. And then the second summer, he had bought a thousand uh, TV guided Maverick missiles, and so we uh, went over there to train them how to shoot Mavericks. At the end of the training period, the head of the Air Force, a guy in General Kotomi, who was a really a sharp guy. If he called up Central Casting and said, send me the head of the Air Force. This is the guy you'd get, you know. He wanted to do a demonstration of the Mavericks and put on an air show for him. Took a tank, painted it black with rattle cans and put it on the far side of the airfield. Seated it with a couple of 50-gallon drums of diesel fuel. And that was the target. And one of our students, Iranian students, was supposed to fly down the runway. The reviewing stand was on the other side of the runway, and uh, the Shah was there, the head of the Air Force. I was on the reviewing stand with beside the shawl because no one is allowed to stand behind the shawl because the Shah had survived three different assassination attempts, and he had these um, Iranian equivalent of the Secret Service that really were protective of him. So I'm standing about 10 feet away from the Shaw on his right and the head of the Air Force is sitting next to the Shaw, And uh, Major Baezzi, he was supposed to launch the missile, came down the runway. And um, I have to fault myself, I, I didn't brief him very well because one of the prime directives on ordnance air shows is you do not deploy ordnance until you're past the reviewing station, right? Well, anyway, Baezzi, got a lock-on on on the tank target, and I guess he got buck fever or something, but he launched the missile out of range and that the missile's TV seeker didn't survive the launch transients and the missile broke lock. And when a Maverick breaks lock, it does a Shondell to the left. And so what we saw was the F-4 coming down the runway, the missile launches and it comes off the aircraft and turns right towards the reviewing stand. And I thought, if I survive the missile strike, these Secret Service guys are going to take me out because it looked exactly <laughs> like we were trying to assassinate the Shah. So I'm standing there watching the missile come at us. and Like I said, it does a chandelle to the left. So it started climbing and it went over the top of a viewing stand about, you no, know, five or 800 feet and disappeared off into the desert. And we had a FAC radio there, so... I got on the fact radio and told Vase, he says, try it again this time. Wait till you pass the reviewing stand before you launch the missile. <laughs> so he did, and then, sure enough, it was a direct hit. And the tank exploded in a fireball, and the Shaw was very happy, and everybody shook hands, and he left. But that was a close run thing. <laughs>
0: If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com slash careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com slash careers. Visit today. Well, if you'd have known then what you would know later, maybe it would have been okay. But Of course, not if it takes you out too. But were you there with Steve Ladd, Smokey? No. Okay. He wrote a book. We had him on the show to talk about his book, Phantoms to Warthogs. And uh, I guess he had spent some time over there as well. But are they still flying those same F-4s? Do you know? I know they're flying a lot of the old equipment. We got them 40 years ago.
1: Well, they're still flying the F-14. Right. I don't know about the F-4, but, uh, you know, I've got to shine my ass a little bit. During the Iran Iraq War, they put up a four-ship of F-4s. They launched 12 Maverick missiles against Iraqi tanks and got 11 direct hits. So uh, that worked out well.
0: <laughs> you trained them well. Yeah. Wow.
1: One of the guys that we trained developed a reputation for ship strikes with uh, Maverick. I don't know how many tankers he attacked, but it was a fair number of tankers they hit with TV Mavericks. And uh, as a result, his call sign was, of all things, Maverick. <laughs> He's probably running a 7-Eleven store in Encino today. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: was the Maverick something you carried on your Phantoms in Vietnam? I know they were
1: towards the end. Right at the end, there was a test program. It was right at the end of the war.
0: So you had some experience afterwards, maybe at the weapons school or...
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
0: So I got to shoot three missiles during my career, a Sidewinder, a Sparrow, and a Maverick. I'm sure you'll blame it on pilot error, Ed, but the Maverick was the only one that worked. The Sparrow fired, but it just went straight into the ocean. The Sidewinder went up and right and crazy. And the Maverick uh, was up in the Utah test range, and it hit the target. And I still have the little thing that connects on the back, you know, the gunner gave me when I landed. So,
1: yeah, the Maverick success rate of all launches is over 90 percent.
0: I'll bet. Very reliable. In fact, that that's why I think they took the Seeker, which wasn't fantastic, but slapped it on the front of a harpoon and called it a slam. And then proved it later for a Slam ER, and they've had some success with that. But
1: and they put an IR seeker on it and a millimeter wave seeker, and made a big warhead. And it's a large missile; it's five, you know 500 pounds, mm-hmm. uh, getting a little long in the tooth now. But it uh, served well for a long time.
0: The one I fired was IR, but we also had the laser, and I don't think we had the TV when I was in. But I. Could be forgetting what did you drop uh, or what did you do? I should say, I guess, in Vietnam was it standard F four fighter bomber type stuff?
1: Yeah, I was with the Eighth Tac Fighter Wing in Ubon, Thailand, and uh, we were out of country specialists. We worked Laos, North Vietnam, and a little bit in Cambodia, and uh, we weren't allowed to work troops in contact because uh, they figured that with our high threat tactics, that maybe the friendlies wouldn't stay friendly very long. <laughs> if <laughs> <laughs> they let us work troop in, troops in conduct. So I never dropped a bomb in South Vietnam. But it was um, air-to-ground stuff, the occasional MiG sweep, and uh, a lot of night flying along the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the southern part of North Vietnam. I should probably know this better, but
0: I don't, because they're just sort of random numbers to me. But I, I've read and I'm rereading Robin Olds' memoir. I've heard the bases and the numbers. Were, were you associated with his
1: outfits at all? I was there after Oles. I knew Oles. I met him several times. A lack of self-confidence was not his problem. <laughs> but uh, Oles was a fighter pilot's fighter pilot. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he flew too much. He drank too much. He chased too many women. He got in too many fights. He was just quintessential fighter pilot. Well, by the old paradigm, I might say. That's right. Nowadays, easy to be court-martialed. <laughs> Yeah. But I think he
0: also probably maybe not singularly, but he was, I would think, you know, partly responsible for the stereotypes of fighter pilots, which I spend some portion of my show trying to break down because these days there are still some of those Hellions, but eh, for the most part, you know, it's, it's the guy or gal next door. and, and,
1: And that's called progress and it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, what about Steve Ritchie? You flew with him, you said. Yeah. He was an instructor two different times at the weapons school and, uh, I've flown quite a few missions with Richie. He um, he and I shared the wing test pilot duties for functional check flights. And so he and I would trade off check flights and he instructed a few sorties in the weapons school. So yeah, I've known Richie a long time and uh, said in the, my last book, uh, and I live to tell the tales, I flew with both Richie and Cunningham. And uh, I think Richie... Overall, was a superior aviator. I mean, he do, he knew air to ground. He did more than go round and round, up and down, and shoot sidewinders. <laughs> but what is uh, Steve Ritchie's claim to fame? Was he an ace? In- he shot down five Migs. In Vietnam? Right. in five MIG-21s with a sparrow.
0: Wow. And hence the comparison, because Duke is the Navy's only, frankly, a Vietnam ace.
1: Right. And he got yeah. MIG-17s with sidewinders. so... Two differences in philosophy there
0: same airplane more or less yeah right and then uh, i think you already said it but uh, f-104 was just uh with the luke folks for a while yeah that's right and
1: that was that, that was instructive because it the airplane didn't turn at all the corner velocity was 420 knots and so we tried to get 450 to 480 before we started to turn but the other part of it is when you use the airplane like it was designed to be used, you couldn't beat it. An intercept on in the F-104 was fairly simple. You just flew a collision course, plugged in the minimum burner in a J-79 to reduce the um, smoke trail and put the target on the nose and they never saw us coming because head on, a uh, F-104 is only this big. And then, And so once you got within Sidewinder range, Fox 2, or maybe even gun range, if they picked you up, you just kept going through and blow through and then pitch back into the fight. <laughs> but if you stopped to turn, you lost. <laughs> I
0: guess there is still an outfit flying these down in Florida, and they help NASA with certain contractual training. So right. when we had episode 104, I reached out to them, and I think I spent 20 minutes on the phone with a guy. And I said, you know, I'd be happy to feature you or mention you or whatever he says we don't really need it you know we're it's not, <laughs> yeah. like, not like we're taking mom and pop for rides we ended up not doing anything with them but it was interesting
1: to hear what they do and you know the italians flew them until like 2003 or something wow. they call them saurus. <laughs> do you do any flying anymore no like i said i used up all my luck yeah,
0: because sometimes for fun, when on these happy hours with folks like you who have had a lot of different airplanes, I like to say, okay, imagine, you know, you walk out to the flight line and everything you flew is sitting there. And you could, you know, like the movie Matrix, hey, I need a qual for this. Okay, boom, you got the qual. Is there one particular that you would make your way towards to go fly?
1: Probably F-16. Yeah? Yeah, that um, I flew that with the Arizona Air National Guard. And uh, it was in my 40s when I did it. Yeah, I
0: always, I marveled at the F-16 when I had a chance to fly it for a couple of years at the end of my career, because you're bubble canopy, right? So I don't have that canopy bar in the F-18, but also you don't really see a whole lot of it. So you just feel like you're being propelled through space, like a squirrel suit, I guess. I've never tried that, but for the guys who get to do that, that's got to be as close to the childhood dreams we used to have of flying in our, you know, in our sleep. But the F-16 was amazing, and it, it had the thrust to weight to back it up, which was impressive. I just wished it had a little more AOA, like F-18. And I guess I'm told that's what the F-22 is. It's the
1: best of both. Yeah, the um, getting back to the F-104, from the cockpit of the F-104, you can't see any of the airplane. So it's like flying on the tip of a spear. Oh, wow. If you adjust the mirrors just right, you can see the wings and check the landing gear. But... And if you turn around, you can see the tail. But when you're flying it, there's none of the airplane is visible. You know,
0: Ed, I forgot to ask, I think, this on the 104 episode. Were the tip tanks something like an option or were certain aircraft built with them and certain were not? There was an option. Really? So any aircraft could have theoretically loaded those on? Were they jettisonable? Yeah. Huh. If we did talk about that, I simply forgot. What did that give you? Do you recall another, what?
1: Thousand pounds, maybe total? Yeah, something like that. I don't, it depends on the model of the 104. The the later versions of the S with the upgraded engine, you could go 1,300, 1,500 miles with uh, four tanks because the engine was, so it was two hops across the country. Uh, The earlier versions, it was three hops, same fuel load, just a different engine. What was the fastest you ever went and which aircraft? I got an F4 to 2.4 one time.
0: Wow. It must have
1: been as naked as the day it was born. It was a test stop. It got a 104 to 2.0. The thing with that is F4 is limited by the duct temperature. The ramps closed and generated a shock in the duct, which of course increased the ambient temperature. And your limiting airspeed was when you got a duct temp highlight, which said that the engine was about to melt. And so you had to slow down. The F-104 was um, less informative. When you got a duck temp high, you just got a yellow warning light at the top of the cockpit that said slow.
0: <laughs> Caveman terms, right? Just right. You slow down.
1: That's right. That's <laughs> it.
0: So you got out of doing all that while you still had your nine lives left and got into some intel. And then uh, did you
1: end up retiring from active duty? well I when I left that uh, flying uh, joined the reserves and so my all my Intel work was with the reserves and I got a job at a Hughes Aircraft company in uh, international sales and yeah. spent 25 years with Hughes and Raytheon in the international missile business
0: okay before I moved to Orora Grande I used to live in Canoga Park and we'd always drive by there was uh, a Hughes plant right there
1: yeah that's that's where I, I think I was there about Eight or ten years, you could over park. Yeah, yeah. All
0: right, it's funny, small world. And then, uh, then you picked up writing. And what are you doing these days? Hopefully, enjoying retired life.
1: Well, it's um, what I do is as little as possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I enjoy writing, and um, I think I've tapped out my writing potential. And I, after twenty five years in marketing, I enjoy selling the books as well. So these days. You have to sell your own books. The publisher won't. The books don't sell themselves. So I spent a good deal of time marketing the books. And you said one of them. I forgot the title is Your Memoir. Is that right? Yeah, it's War for the Hell of It. War for the Hell of It. Okay. That's the two years in Vietnam. And then the last book is called And I Live to Tell the Tales. Okay. And that's the rest of the flying crew. The story about the Shah of Iran is in that book. So let
0: me ask you, Ed, because I am noodling with the idea of writing my memoirs. And to be honest, I've scoped out the chapter layout I've started. I wrote the foreword. I wrote a little bit of chapter one. And I'm kind of struggling because there's two things, and maybe you can help me out here. One is I find myself using the word I and me a lot. And and I guess that just comes with the territory. But also, I'm wondering if, did it ever occur to you, like, was there a part of, like, I can write the what, but it's the so what, right? In other words, I can write what I did in my life, but I guess I'm struggling a little bit with why are people going to bother reading this and and will they enjoy it? Did you have those issues?
1: Oh, yeah. You don't want to write a book that just sounds like you're standing at the bar telling stories, you know? Right. But the first book, I structured it a little differently. I wrote it first person, present tense, like I was in Vietnam at the time. And uh, instead of chronological sequence of the two tours, it's 25 chapters. Each is a self-contained flying story or experience story. And, you know, you're right. That's a lot of first person. I did this. I saw that. The second one, the memoir is more of a classic memoir where you're talking about past tense. I don't think you should be worried about using too many first person pronouns because that's what people want to see, or want to hear, but I, I do think you need a hook in it. You need some kind of lesson that says, "I did this, and this is what I learned," or "This is the difference that I made." Or in my second book, I included a lot of mistakes that I've made, of which I had plenty to choose from. <laughs> and you know, one of the lessons of that book is, you know, you screw up and keep going. You know. But uh, you need some sort of hook to hang the narrative on. Yeah. And I think
0: I, I have thought about that. And I think for me, it's going to be the fact that I you know, went to an air show in 1978 in Point Magoo. Speaking of shooting missiles, uh, they shot a Sidewinder on that show. And I know that because I, I remember thinking it, and I mentioned it somewhere on the show, and one of the uh, Patreon supporter guys came on and he said, oh, yeah, I was at that show. They did that. I said, oh, great. I'm glad to... But that was the beginning for me. And I had some adversity just even getting in the Navy medically. And thankfully, was able to get a waiver. And then towards the end of my career, I ended up going med down for over three years. And it's a story I haven't yet told everybody. So I'm still sitting on it, sort of like Captain Miller in Saving Private Ryan. He didn't tell everyone he was a teacher until he needed to. So I'm kind of doing the same thing. But but I thought that could be the point is is the determination and tenacity to overcome these obstacles to get what you really want. And sure. in the end, I was able to go back to flying and uh, retired out of flying after four years on the bench. And for me, that was a big deal because I didn't screen for command. And so I just thought, oh, no big deal. I'll just fly the whole time and get out and go to the airlines or whatever. And as soon as I was grounded, my world just crumbled. I thought, great. Now what? <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, there's your hook right there, you know, overcoming overcoming adversity. And, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, when your grandkid picks up the book and reads it, what do you want him to take away from it? Right. And it's funny,
0: because in chapter one, where it's a lot of the beginning stuff, I find myself wondering how much background do I really need to give? I was talking about my mother coming over from Denmark as an immigrant. And then the day I got hit in the mouth with a baseball and had braces for the next seven years. And I think the point is I probably just need to get the writing muscles going and just put it all on there like a big lump of clay on the spindle and then find someone, an editor probably, uh, who can mold it into shape later. Did you use
1: editors? Uh, yes and no. I used more in order of proofreaders. I'm a terrible proofreader. I misspell a lot of words and punctuation and grammar is not my forte, but, uh, I had a little, little reluctance to let an editor edit my own life, Yeah. but, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a reasonable start. What got me started on it was my dad was, a 06 in the U.S. Army during World War II. And, uh, he started out in the army, in the, the cavalry with horses. He joined the horse cavalry in 1939. And then, uh, We joined the war in 41. They mechanized, so he didn't spend a lot of time on a horse. But he was the only guy that I ever met that was in the horse cavalry. After the war, he he came home and got on with his life and didn't talk much about it because that's what you did back then, right? Right. And when he passed away, all his stories went with him. I I never learned what it was like to be in the horse cavalry or what Custer was really like, you know? And I said, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to put this down and so that if anybody's interested, they can read it. And so that's what got me started was to put my story down so that my kids and grandkids would, if they were interested, would know what I did. And it worked out. And I'm looking at it from the
0: point of view of I've built this audience of people who appreciate the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And I surmise that some of them might be interested in the story as well since I've become sort of a mini celebrity, at least in their worlds, which is still crazy to think about, because to me and my family, I'm just a relatively normal person. But I like the idea, though, that it also helps me to organize my thoughts on how things went and what things are are true or not. And like I said, I've had to ask for help. Like, did I really see a
1: a missile shoot at an air show or did I just dream that? And so well, I think what you'll find as you get deeper into it Memories will trigger other memories, oh yeah, yeah, what I found is that I remember shooting a missile at the Shah of Iran, and then later on, I remember a party we had in Tehran, and that brought up a a story which I couldn't put in the book <laughs> and so and, and so you know memories trigger memories, and the deeper you get into it, the more memories it'll come back,
0: yeah, yeah no I, i'm I'm sure of that. On the other hand, I guess, right, don't
1: let the truth get in the
0: way of a good story. <laughs> it's entertaining.
1: Well, you know the difference between a war story and a fairy tale? Uh-oh. fairy tale starts out once upon a time. A war story starts out, there I was. <laughs> That's the only difference. <laughs> there you go. Well, where do people find all these books, Ed? They're all on Amazon. They can just go to my homepage on Amazon. They'll see all the books there. And they'll... Uh, one of my marketing uh, ploys is that I offer a money back guarantee. You buy a book and you read it and you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. So far, I haven't, nobody's taken me up on
0: it. Oh, good. And so you uh, corrected me on the pronunciation last time, but the last name is spelled C O B L E
1: I G H. That's right. And Ed. Nelson's yeah. my real first name. Yeah.
0: You've gone by Ed. Yeah. I go by Vincent's my middle name because otherwise I just have too many L's in my name. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know the uh, the memoir for me is one of these things. So I fly for the airlines, and I was flying home from uh, Maui, and there's no one to talk to, right? You just have HF you monitor, and and they won't let you just open your laptop or you know watch a video on something. So I find myself just scribbling notes, like okay, in chapter seven on Top Gun, I would want to remember this story, like you said, right? Once you start jotting that down, so like I said, even just getting this. Happy hour booked with you every day is like, okay, I've got episode 151 coming out. And before you and I got on this call, I was writing the description for that. And then before you know it, 152 will be here. And and so it never ends, but hopefully I'll find time to do some writing at some point.
1: Yeah. And another thing I would advise you to do is write a rough draft and then put it away. Let it sit for two weeks, a month and then go back to it. Okay. And you'll find a lot of things that you can do better if you're looking at them cold. Do you mean like a chapter or the whole thing or just... Either one. I usually write a chapter, save it. A week or two later, I'll come back and read it. And then I'll revise it. And then before the book comes out, I'll probably revise it again. So All right. practice makes perfect.
0: Yeah. Well, it makes better in my case, but that makes sense. Well, gosh, Ed, you've led an interesting life. What, what have we not talked about today that might
1: be fun for listeners? Well, one of the things that might be good for your listeners is I've had the opportunity to fly with fighter pilots from a lot of different countries, 12 or 15. I've flown with Norwegians and Germans and the Brits and the Kiwis and Australians and the Iranians and uh, you know, on and on. And what I discovered is we're all alike. You could take a Kiwi or an Aussie or a Brit, and that we do, and put them in an American fighter squadron and you know they fit right in. Same personality, same outlook on life. And the ultimate test of that was, remember when the Russian defected and flew the mig twenty five into Japan. Belenko? Yeah, Victor Belenko. Victor Belenko finished up his military flying career with the Montana Air National Guard. (laughs) I had no idea, really. (laughs) And and by all accounts, he fit right in. (laughs) Oh my goodness,
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, Ed, uh, people who watch or listen to this might think I put you up to that because I have said that before. And it was, at the time, I don't know that I'd put much thought into it. I think it just sort of came out and probably as typical for me, not very eloquently. But I've thought the same thing. And I think what unites us all is we have like this grand secret of just how glorious it is to go flying and cheap gravity for a little while while you're still working with gravity, but you know what, you get the point. Yeah, yeah. But also you're up in the clouds and, and if you're flying by yourself, which you've done in different aircraft, you think to yourself, I'm the only human being seeing this view right now. Not like the other day in Maui, I was watching the sunset. And so were a hundred other people. There's something just very special about escaping earth for a little while. And, but also in our case, dueling, up in those very same clouds.
1: Yeah. And you know, the other part of it is you're there by yourself and there's nobody that's going to get you into or out of anything, but you. Very good. All right. Well, do you have a website? I thought, did you say that at one point or just your. www.edcobbley.com. No space between the two words. All right. Well, we'll help
0: promote that Ed. and. Uh, yeah.
1: Check it out. And, and there's some, there's some other war stories in there and. Uh, there's a contact page if people want to yell at me in the email <laughs> well we'll keep you as a resource
0: for the fighter pilot podcast because you certainly have dipped your toe in a lot of different pools it sounds like so uh, and if I ever make it back to my old stomping grounds up there I'll, I'll look you up in Paso yeah, and pass troubles.
1: yeah there's a rumor that there's wine around here I'm sure we could find some if try
0: <laughs> sounds great all right uh, thanks very much thank you
1: thanks for inviting me You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.